Hey, this is Eugene with the Divided Families Podcast. I'm excited to introduce this episode about the Red Cross's Restoring Family Links Project, which is a totally free resource we hope this podcast can help raise awareness about. If you know anybody who's separated from a loved one, you can check the episode description or our episode notes on Instagram for a link you can follow and a hotline you can call for more information. And before turning it over to Paul for his conversation with Mark, I wanted to just say that I was really inspired by Mark's telling of the history behind the Red Cross. You know, it's this almost mythological organization that we've heard about since we were young, most of us in America anyway. And the stories he shares about particular recent cases he's involved with, they feel tied to a longer chain of people genuinely trying to help one another, as he puts that in the context of Clara Barton, who started the Red Cross. And I hope that by bringing together these different stories and perspectives on this podcast, we can begin to see that chain more clearly. So without further ado, here's Paul with Mark Owens. Podcast. This is Paul Lee, and today I'm here with uh, Mark Owens, who is the lead caseworker for the Restoring Family Links Project at the American Red Cross. Mark, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you for having me, Paul. I'm really happy to have the chance to talk to you about the program today. Yeah, same here, because I think we've had a lot of conversations in the past few years about the issue of divided families in the U.S. and North Korea. But what this podcast is trying to do is, you know, take a broader kind of a comparative look at the issue of divided families and share different stories of family separation. So would you be able to begin by just introducing the Restoring Family Links Project and what you do at the American Red Cross? Definitely, Paul. So I think most Americans are probably familiar with the American Red Cross because maybe they have donated blood in the past or yeah, me too. <laughs> they volunteered for a blood drive or maybe perhaps they experienced a natural disaster or experienced a fire. Um, and so they were reached, they experienced uh, receiving services from the American Red Cross that way. But most people aren't really familiar with the fact that one of the primary, one of the main programs of the Red Cross is this Restoring Family Links program. We help reconnect families that have been separated by war, armed conflict, uh, natural disaster, and migration. And we've been doing this type of work since the very foundation of the American Red Cross. And this work, this reconnecting families, this is something that the Red Cross in general, it's, it's something that goes back to the beginning of its roots. So I'm a little bit of a history buff, so I do like to talk about Claire Barton a little mm-hmm. bit. And you know, she was the person who founded the American Red Cross back in 1881. But I like to go back a little bit further just to tell a story about how she was involved in the kind of work that we still do today. So even before the American Red Cross was founded, Clara Barton was providing assistance to uh, soldiers and victims of war going back to the Civil War here in the United States. Some people may have heard the story or the term um, angel of the battlefield. Well, that's a term that was applied to Clara Barton because during the Civil War, um, she actually uh, went to Antietam Battlefield 
which was on one of the bloodiest days of the Civil War in September of 1862. Um, having heard that there were tens of thousands of casualties in Antietam, she traveled overnight from Washington to the battlefield to provide assistance. She brought relief supplies, bandages, things like that. So she was tending to soldiers who were wounded on the battlefield actually while shooting was still going on. Um, and that experience left quite an impression upon her. In, you know, out of the Civil War, there were numerous, you know, thousands of, of soldiers whose, you know, their families did not know anything about what happened to them. So following the war, Clara Barton was working in Washington, D.C. at the U.S. Patent Office. Um, actually, she was one of the first women to be employed there. And during that time, she was also receiving letters from people across the United States who had heard about her work on the battlefield. And they were looking for missing uh, family members who had been fighting in the war. So she opened up an office. It was a missing soldier's office right in Washington, D.C. Um, it's actually a museum today that you can visit on F Street. And from that office, she helped locate and reconnect thousands of soldiers with their families following the war. Um, so that's really at the beginning, and this was well before she founded the American Red Cross. So the roots were there. Then on the other side of the Atlantic, you know, there was war raging in the 1870s, 1880s. And out of that experience, some of you may have heard of Henri Dunant who was a Swiss businessman who founded the International Committee of the Red Cross, right. which was influential in the development of the Geneva Conventions, which provide protections to um, soldiers and civilians during times of war. So following Clara's experience during the Civil War and following that, she actually traveled to Europe um, on the advice of doctors to get some rest. But Clara Barton wasn't the kind of person to just sit down and relax. So while she was in Europe, this was a time, you know, conflicts were going on, there were political changes happening. And um, she heard about the work that was being carried out by Henri Dunant and the establishment of the very beginnings of the International Red Cross Movement. And coming back to the United States inspired by that work, she then established the American Red Cross. So since its inception, Restoring Family Links have been provided in some way, shape, or form. And to this day, we're working on cases and helping families that have been separated due to conflicts going all the way back to the Holocaust. We still occasionally have World War II casework. And we work on um, helping families that are separated due to events that are happening today, such as the migration that's happening across the U.S.-Mexico border as well as people who have fled conflicts in places in the Middle East and in Africa as well. And in terms of reuniting, restoring family links, do you just work with physically helping connecting uh, families and loved ones in the same location, or do you offer different kinds of services as well? Yep. So the, the main thing with our program is that we help reconnect families and help families set to regain contact when they're separated across an international border. So for example, um, somebody may come to the United States as a refugee, but they lost contact with their family when they fled their home village in their home country. And sometimes that separation can last for years. And then eventually they come to the Red Cross seeking help. And we work through our partners overseas to try to help locate that relative. 
So we um, work with 190 Red Cross and Red Crescent national societies. You know, just like here in the United States, we have the American Red Cross. In Kenya, there's the Kenyan Red Cross. So we work through those partners to help families locate missing relatives as well as stay in contact with them. And when I'm talking about staying in contact, I'm literally talking about exchanging messages between uh, family members. And this can take the form of an actual paper message with letter written from uh, someone's loved one that uh, they can receive through the Red Cross, through um, things like uh, phone call services that we provide along the U.S.-Mexico border, where mm -hmm. we provide cell phones for migrants to make quick phone calls to a relative to let them know that they're okay. I mean, for me, it's a bit hard to, and I think for a lot of us, I feel like we're overconnected today. You know, I, I feel like I can message someone, message my, uh, you know, grandparents in South Korea or my friends anywhere in the world, really, through WhatsApp, Facebook, email. So it's kind of hard for me to imagine not being able to contact someone. So, I mean, do you have any you know, personal stories that you've encountered of reconnecting, restoring these family links that you'd be willing to share? Definitely. At first, I mean, I think even though sometimes it may be hard to imagine losing contact like that, I think we all know sort of at a different level, we know what that experience is like of even briefly losing contact with someone that we love. You know, we've had the, ex most of us had the experience growing up as children and getting lost from our parents in the store and how terrifying that felt. So imagine yourself in a position where all of a sudden your life changes in an instant and war is raging around you. And you have at that moment to make a decision to pick up everything that you have with you and flee for your safety. And unfortunately, sometimes families get separated in that situation. And one of the things that you know, I always hear about following a natural disaster or a conflict situation is the very first thing that people want is they want to know what happened to their family. That's their very first concern. You know, I hear from people all the time. They say that they can't sleep or they can't eat. They can't move on and function with their lives because they don't know what happened to their mother, their daughter, their brother. So they come to us for assistance. So I wanted to share just a couple of stories that, you know, left an impact on me over the years. One was a case that happened early on when I started working with the program. This was a case where a daughter who had made it to the United States as a refugee was living in Missouri, and she was looking for her mother, whom she had become separated from because of the civil war that was going on in Angola at the time. Angola um, is a country in on the west coast of Africa. So she had come to the Red Cross um, hoping to, to locate her mother. They hadn't had any contact in at least 10 or 15 years, I believe. So it's been quite some time. So we worked through our partners at the Angolan Red Cross, and eventually they were able to locate uh, her mother. So her mother sent a message back through the Red Cross, to which we received, and we got it to the daughter. We were able to deliver it to her. And in the message, the mother informed the daughter that she was quite ill. And in fact, you know, she didn't have very long to live. So, you know, it was a bittersweet moment for, for the daughter to finally find out that, you know, her mother was alive, but, you know, she was quite ill as well. So we tried to spread some information about this story. The, 
caseworker that had been working with the, with this woman got a news story published about this. And luckily that story caught the attention of somebody who was willing to help this woman get back to Angola to see her mother uh, mm-hmm. for at least one time before her mother passed away. And so that happened. You know, somebody reached out and was able to assist this woman to go back to Angola and see her mother for one final time. So that was one case that left um, quite an impression on me. Another one happened around 2011. I was working, I was visiting the Dadaab refugee camp, which is um, a refugee camp in Kenya, about 30 kilometers away from the border with Somalia. And at the time I was visiting the camp, there was a large influx of refugees coming across the border from Somalia into Kenya. And they were coming because there was a food crisis going on in Somalia, but it was made worse by the fact that, you know, conflict had been raging in that region for for years. And there was an uptick in the conflict. So at that time, about 1,500 people a day were coming across the border and into the camp. So our colleagues in the Kenyan Red Cross and our ICR, our International Committee of the Red Cross colleagues, were providing uh, cell phones that once people were registered in the camp, they could use the phone to call home, let their family know that they had arrived safely um, and what was happening with them. And so that was a great way for families to you know, stay in touch and not lose touch in that, that critical moment. So while we were working in the camp, I was delivering family news. I was delivering these Red Cross messages um, I was telling you about. And um, we stopped at one house. And when we got to the house, these two kids came out. And I immediately recognized these kids because about a year before, at our office in Washington, we had received a Red Cross message um, from these kids. And they were looking for their mom. And they had written the message addressed to their mom. And the address on the message just said Washington. And they had sent a photograph of themselves with that message. And that photograph kind of stayed in my head. So we did some research in our office, and that's what we do. We get it when we get a case. We search through a variety of resources. There's, you know, internet resources, resources, excuse me, that we look through. But we also count on volunteers and staff that work with the Restoring Family Links program out across the country to do searches in the community. So through our research, we found, we actually found the mother of these kids and we found that she was in Washington State. Luckily, she was in Washington State with another one of the siblings. So we eventually got a a message from the children's mother along with a picture of her and we sent that message to the kids in the camp in Kenya. So back now to 2011, I'm in the camp and I met these kids and I, you know, I recognized them because we had just worked on a case for them. So this is already a really happy moment, you know, especially for, for me because we do this work, but oftentimes, you know, I'm sitting in an office in Washington. I don't often get a chance to see the actual connections happen. You know, it's often, you know, the people behind these stories. So, you know, meeting them was, was, this, fant- was this wonderful experience. But then to top it off, they went back into the house and they brought out a picture of, they brought out that Red Cross message that they, that they had received a year or more before from their mom with the photograph of their mom and their older sister. And they showed me the message and you could tell that they had, you know, looked at this message so many times, opened it, closed it, kept folding it, and they kept it on them all the time. Oh. 
And they said that, you know, even though their mom wasn't there with them, having that message was like having a piece of her with them. And so that's why they held on to that. They didn't let it go because it was their connection to their mom. And that moment sort of solidified the importance of this and how for so many families, it's more important than even food or water. For those kids, that message from their mother was their lifeline. It kept them going through, you know, the difficult days living in that refugee camp. So that's something that has always stuck with me. Um, you know, even though I don't always get a chance to see the faces behind these stories, there's always that emotion and that feeling because we all know what that feeling is like. Do you know whatever happened to those if they were able to get out of the refugee camp and, you know, actually see their mother again? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't know what the final outcome of that of that story was. I don't know if the kids were able to come eventually to reunite. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, one of the things is, you know, we, we don't have any control over immigration decisions or any influence over that sort of thing. So, you know, once we get the family reconnected, we try to refer them to the services that can help them bring their relative to the United States. So a refugee resettlement agency in their community or an a asylum, I'm sorry, an immigration attorney, for example, providing legal immigration advice. So we don't always hear the final result, you know, the final, final reunification, but then sometimes we do. Another story that I remember from, this was a few years ago, there were two twin brothers who had been separated as a result of World War II and the Holocaust. Um, Their mother had, you know, put them up for adoption because they were, if I remember this correctly, they were, their father was a German soldier. So their mother had put them up for adoption to avoid, to try to, you know, to help them. Yeah. Eventually, and, you know, eventually one of the brothers was brought to the United States and, you know, had no contact with this other sibling. Eventually, the two siblings were able to locate each other through the Red Cross Tracing Services, and they were able to reconnect. One of the brothers um, traveled to Poland eventually to see his brother for the first time. And, you know, by this time, they were both in their late 80s. And so you can imagine the emotion that they felt upon seeing each other for the first time after all those decades. And again, it's just there's nothing that I just don't think there's anything that compares to that that feeling and witnessing a family come together like that. Wow. I, I gotta say that must be so special. I feel like for a lot of us, including myself and working in, you know, office environments and places like DC, it's hard to see the tangible impact, you know, positive impact, even if you are doing good work or, you know, even if you have a positive mission overall. So especially that, that refugee camp in, in Kenya, that must have been so special to be there. Mm-hmm. And just like you said, it's most of, I would say 98, 99% of my time, you know, because I work at the national headquarters office, my, most of my time is spent looking at cases in the database and making decisions about what kind of information we need and where the case should go. But I don't yeah. usually see the clients. That happens at the local level. Right. So, you know, across the country in communities just like here in Washington, D.C. And, and smaller communities across the United States, refugees, immigrants, asylum seekers, they're part of our communities and they oftentimes need the service. So 
there at you know the American Red Cross offices, chapters across the country, that's where those connections really happen. And so, you know, we rely on the assistance of really hardworking, active volunteers to make this happen in the communities across the country. So, you know, we have volunteers helping with interviewing clients, gathering information yeah. um, to open up cases. Um, volunteers help deliver news to clients on cases that um, have been worked on. So, Some volunteers go out and do outreach for the program to tell the stories, to get, you know, make sure that, to raise awareness that the service even exists. Wow. So if uh, anyone listening to this podcast is interested in volunteering, you know what to do. <laughs> yes, yeah, so definitely. If, if this is something that piques your interest, you know, I know folks out there, some of you have experiences of family separation of your own, or maybe you're just the kind of person that likes investigative work and looking through um, databases, conducting a search in your community to try to find someone. Or maybe you're the per kind of person that just likes to work behind a computer, work behind the screens, and make sure that case data is entered accurately into our database where we track cases. Or you're the kind of person who's very outgoing and you like to tell a story and you want to get out there and raise awareness about this program that not that many people know about. So if that's the kind of thing that interests you, definitely go visit our website, www.redcross.org and click on volunteer. You can find information there about how to volunteer as well as a link to um, fill out an application, which will get you into our volunteer system. You can learn about local opportunities to volunteer either with the Restoring Family Links program or other programs that are offered by the Red Cross. I also encourage people to contact their local Red Cross office directly to ask, to mention, you know, they heard about this program and are interested in finding out more. You can find your contact information for your local Red Cross also by going to www.redcross.org. You can put your zip code in there on the site and it will give you the contact information for your local chapter. Awesome. I mean, uh, that's usually kind of the last question, final question that we ask on this podcast is, you know, takeaways and concrete action items that listeners could do. But this, this is really great. And Mark, you've just provided some, you shared some really heartwarming stories, success stories of family reunion or family, at least reconnecting loved ones. But could you talk a little bit about challenges? You, know, you have this bird's eye view, uh, big picture, and working on this issue for so many years. Mm -hmm. But there must have been, you must see so many story, uh, sto stories and examples of cases that don't work out, right? Even if... yeah. Mm -hmm. people want it and are have so much faith in it. So, you know, what are the barriers and challenges to reconnecting family links? Yep, that's a great question. And it's true. It's, you know, it's not all happy stories sometimes. Sometimes we're not able to find a family member. That, that does happen. Sometimes we find, we find information about somebody's loved one, but that person has already passed away before um, we could, you know, make that physical connection. And that's, that's always bittersweet because, you know, the family, they were able to find out some closure, some information, but they didn't get a chance to have that final conversation. So that's, you know, that's always hard. I think now, increasingly, some of the challenges that we're facing are, one, like I mentioned earlier, this isn't a very well-known service of the Red Cross. And so there are many people in our communities across the country who definitely could use the service, but they aren't aware of it. 
So, you know, we really need more cheerleaders out there to get the word out in the communities that we exist. Another challenge that we see now is if you look current at, you know, the migration crises that are happening around the world now, people are on the move in large numbers, moving very quickly to various parts of the, of the world. Mm-hmm. So we see people on the migration route through Latin America and Central America coming across the U.S.-Mexico border. But we're not seeing only Mexicans and Central Americans. Now we're also seeing people coming from as far afield as China, Haiti, Somalia, even Eritrea, who are coming across the U.S.-Mexico border fleeing some of the desperate situations that that they've encountered. But that type of situation creates unique challenges because people are on the move rapidly. How do you locate somebody when they're moving and they may not necessarily want to be found because there are the additional dangers on the migration route, such as traffickers. And so those bring new complexities to, to this kind of work. It also means that we are looking at new technologies ways to improve our service and ways to locate people more rapidly and get them information. So it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity for us Mm -hmm. um, to grow and provide better, more relevant services. So that's why we're expanding things like providing the phone call services, expanding the places where we offer, for example, even setting up a Wi-Fi routers and also charging stations Mm-hmm. in key places where migrants are coming. Just those sort of simple actions have a huge impact on making sure that families stay connected. So those are ways that we're looking to meet those challenges, and we think that those challenges are only going to increase. And you mentioned that um, the American Red Cross for this project always works with uh, the counterpart, for example, the Red Cross Society in Angola, right? Are these counterparts and other Red Cross chapters usually cooperative and easy to work with? Like, th- there's no problem with establishing contact and working with the other Red Crosses around the world? Yes, great question. I think one of the great things about the the Red Cross movement um, and, and this Red Cross sort of mission around the globe is that we have a really strong network um, and a network that is vast that most other humanitarian aid agencies do not have this coverage. And because of the neutrality of this organization, its independence, its impartiality, the Red Cross can get into areas and get access to areas that other agencies are not able to to gain access to. So that strength and that connection really is one of the, the most important features, I think, of the movement and one of the things that makes this work possible. Yeah. So, for example, we're able to, you know, work with the Cuban Red Cross yeah. on to help resolve family separation um, issues, even though that's, you know, a government that we're, our, the United States government isn't on the most friendly terms with at this, at this moment. Yeah. However, we work on a day-to-day basis with those national societies and we work with in friendship and cooperation with them. Because we all have the same goal, and mm-hmm. that is to make sure that we help the most vulnerable, no matter which country, which side of the conflict they're on, and that sort of thing. Yeah, something we're trying to do with this project, the podcast project, is that one of the things, I mean, personally, that I feel is so tragic is that something like family separation, which is a human, you know, human tragedy, and it should be considered as purely humanitarian issue, 
whether it's Cuba, whether it's North Korea, whether it's at the U.S.-Mexico border, it's become so politicized, mm-hmm. you know, by all governments involved, really, and, and the media. So we're really trying to bring out the human element of these stories and on this project. And one thing, uh, something that you mentioned earlier that the American Red Cross is trying to do is provide closure which I think is really at the heart of what we've been trying to do with Divided Families USA for Korean American Divided Families. But I remember, I think it was you actually who told me this in the past that, you know, there are different kinds of closure, right? It doesn't just have to be living together happily ever after. It could be just finding out whatever happened to your loved one, whether they're dead or alive. And in the um, in the case of Korea, North Korea, Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the stories of these very short temporary reunions between these elderly people from North and South Korea. And afterwards, you know, they, they haven't seen their, their husband or wife or sibling for decades, and they only get to see them for two or three days, and then they have to say goodbye again. So a lot of them, you know, that, that, that must be so emotionally and physically overwhelming. Right. So I, I guess my question is, what do you think is kind of the most effective form of of closure for family separation from from the examples that you've seen it just i mean i think it's different for every family you know for example for some families if they find out that the person that they were looking for has passed away sometimes we try to get them a photograph of the headstone a photograph of the gravesite or a copy of the death certificate something tangible that they can have to say okay like you know i know that my relative has passed away but i have this piece this proof this memory that sort of thing for some of the holocaust related cases that we've worked on over the years the families who come to us they know that that relative died in the holocaust but for them it's important to know the date that their relative passed away so that they can mark that date of remembrance. So they come to the Red Cross seeking documentation. And so for some of the Holocaust cases that we've worked on, we've been able to find that information in Holocaust archives and provide that to the family. So just having that date that they can mark and memorialize was a big form of comfort to that family member. I mean, And, you know, like I was mentioning before with the kids, they didn't have physically have their mother with them at the time, but they had a tangible message with their mother's handwriting on it. And so for them, that was comfort and closure. I'm sure, you know, as you just said, each case is different, whether it's the political, cultural context, or regardless of country, each family is different. But do you see any common strands or any any observations that you've noticed, like key trends that you've noticed from these different cases that you've you've worked on the importance of family i mean that is something that unites us no matter where we're from no matter what our background no matter what experiences we've been through positive or negative um i even think about some of the work that our colleagues have done in places of detention with people who are detained for political reasons or sometimes people who have been detained in relation to terrorism charges, for example. No matter what a situation somebody finds themselves in, there's still that importance of family, and there's still that importance of, you know, everyone has a mother, everyone has a father. We all want to know what has happened to our children, to our parents. Um, And so when I see the concern in the writings of a mother or the joy 
that comes across in a message, a reply message that comes back after someone who has been detained has received a message from their family. That cuts across whatever circumstances led to that person being detained. It was that importance of reconnecting the family and the emotion behind it. That is something that just unifies across the board any of the, the clients that I've worked with, the cases that, that we've witnessed. And I think that's, a, you know, it's, that's an important reminder for, you know, any of us working in this, this field or even people, you know, hearing about this. Rather than focusing on these differences that separate us, what connects us and its family and its love of family and its concern when we're separated from the ones that we love. And I think that's something that most people intrinsically understand um, and get. Absolutely. I think that's really at the heart of what both of us are trying to do. And so very concretely speaking, if somebody wants to, if somebody is uh, looking for a, a loved one in, a, in another country or you know, separated from a conflict or know somebody um, who is, what do they need to do? Like, what are the, um, you know, steps ABC that they need to do to try their luck with this process? So they need to contact their local Red Cross. There's a couple of ways that they can reach out to us to begin to open up a case. They can contact their, their chapter directly, their American Red Cross local chapter. You can find that information on our website www.redcross.org. You can put in your zip code and it will show you your local chapter office. Additionally, we have a hotline, a national hotline. It's called the Restoring Family Links Helpline. And anybody can call that number and potentially open up a Restoring Family Links case. That way they can get assistance. They can get information about the program. That phone number is one 844 Seven eight two nine four four one. So please, I encourage anyone if you are looking for a missing relative, you've lost contact with them, and they're in another country, please give us a call at one eight four four seven eight two nine four four one. Great, and we will definitely share that along as well. So that's I I think that's pretty much it. Um, for what I wanted to ask you, but is there anything else you would like to share or any other takeaways you think before, uh, before we close? I just encourage anybody who's heard this and has any sort of interest in the program to reach out to the links I mentioned before. Um, I encourage anyone interested to look into volunteering with the program. I think that's, you know, one of our biggest needs is more hands on deck. We need to be more um, visible in the communities that we're serving across the United States. You know, like I said at the beginning, most people know about the American Red Cross because of blood or disaster, natural disaster, or maybe, um, you know, they have a relative in the armed forces that, you know, we've helped get a message to in the past. But we also have folks in our community that sometimes are in the shadows and in the silence. And they need this help too. And so, you know, I encourage anyone interested in helping to reach out uh, to the American Red Cross and look into volunteering with us. I almost forgot a key detail. Is there, uh, for this, the pro- Restoring Family Links program, do you charge a fee for the, the services for the fa- Great question. Family? The services are free of charge, completely free of charge. That's great. That is really great to hear. Well, 
Thank you so much again, Mark. I, I, I feel really inspired, actually, uh, by the work that you've been doing for so long. Thank uh, you, Paul. I'm so glad to have this opportunity to chat with you. I've really enjoyed working with you, um, and I'm really looking forward to the work that we do together You know, in the coming months and years. Thanks so much for listening, and again, you can find the information for the Restoring Family Links project in our episode description or on our episode notes on Instagram. Thanks, as always, to Flannel Albert for the music, and you can follow us on Instagram at Divided Families Podcast for updates regarding the next episode. You can also subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to now, and yeah, we hope to see you next time. Thanks.